Well, good morning. Good to see you again. Glad you're here. If you're a visitor with us this morning, uh, we're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 in just a few minutes. We're working through a series entitled Letters to the Church this year where we're going through the uh, New Testament books that were originally letters written to the church. And so we've made it through the uh, book of Ephesians, and now we're in First and Second Timothy and Titus. We're going to cover those uh, last week, today, and then the next couple weeks. Um, another uh, feature on the website is we, we have the sermons on there as well, so that if you ever want to go back and re-listen or catch up, um, that's for you. Um, Hopefully, we'll have manuscripting one day even, too, where it's all, it's all typed out for you. So um, just want to let you know that as well. Um, so this morning, I don't know about your church experience, um, really. And so mine, uh, in terms of the gospel, when I came into the church, the church I came into, the gospel was really only mentioned when talking about evangelism sharing your faith, sharing what you believe with somebody who maybe isn't a Christian. That was when the gospel came up. Matter of fact, the only time there was specific training or teaching in the gospel was evangelism training. And so what we're learning from, uh, for, really from all of Paul's letters, but in First and Second Timothy and Titus, as he calls church leaders to character and godliness, a sincere faith, a clear conscience, that all these things actually come out of a growing and, and deepening understanding of the gospel. So rather than the gospel being 101 or JV Christianity, the door you walk through that you no longer have to talk about or think about once you become a Christian, it actually is the fuel that continues to fuel your faith and your spiritual growth. So the gospel is something we should think on daily, we should teach on weekly, we should sing it to one another. The redeemed people of God should sing the gospel to one another every week. I need to be reminded of the gospel. It's where I find the grace to cover my failure, but also the power to strive towards godliness. And so uh, just backing up a little bit to last week, um, we, we started in 1 Timothy 1. We're going to move to 1 Timothy 3, but we're going to start in the section that uh, comes right after the, uh, the prescription for the character of elders and deacons. Now, the reason we're doing that is this coming Wednesday night is First Wednesday, and we're actually going to be introducing two new elder candidates to the church this coming Wednesday night at 630. And so I'll actually be preaching that text Wednesday night. So we're skipping over that uh, to verse 14 in chapter 3, and we're going to pick up, though, where we left off last week, okay? So here's where we left off last week in this. First uh, Timothy in chapter 6, starting at verse 20, this was the end of First Timothy, but the end of our sermon last week. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy at the end of his letter. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith, and grace be with you. So today, as we talk about the gospel, the sound doctrine of our faith, that it's something that's actually been deposited into our lives, not something external that we, we look at, that we think about, that we decide if we like or not, but it's, if you've believed it, it's something that's been deposited into your life. And so from 1 Timothy 1, 5, um, Paul says this. He says, the aim and charge uh, is, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So this word issue is that something that our love would come out of what's been deposited on the inside, okay? And so this is where we're going this morning. I'm gonna read verse 14, 15, and 16, and then we're gonna talk through them. So starting in verse 14, he says this, and this really is a summary of the whole letter. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... 
If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he walks through the gospel. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. So this morning, we're going to rest here and walk through uh, these verses together. Understanding what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, I, I haven't just entrusted you with a church or a role. You've been entrusted by the living God with the gospel. Okay, It's been deposited in your life. Guard that deposit. It will shape your teaching. It will shape your character. It will shape how you treat one another. It will shape your relationship with God. And so the first thing he says, I hope to come to you soon and write these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave or how to live or how to conduct oneself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, um, just to get a clear understanding, so what he's doing, he's writing, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, pastor in Ephesus. So we just came out of Ephesians and more than likely they had already received the letter to the church. Ephesians, and now he's writing a second time specifically to Timothy. And so what we have here more than likely is a reference back to Ephesians 2 where the, uh, the people of God are referred to as a household or a building, a structure. So this metaphor then is something that they had heard before and they had already thought of as a church. Oh, we're the living church. We, as living stones, make up the household of God. So less about a building and more about the people working together, coming together in unity to be the people of God. So in Ephesians 2, just a reference to chapter, uh, to this metaphor, in verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Same phrase. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not a building. The building's the metaphor symbolizing our relationships as the people of God and how we interact with one another, that we would, there would be a stability, a strength among us in the way we come together. And so it's not just how you act or behave while you're in the building, okay? If we don't walk through that, then we're, we'll just think, oh, he's just teaching us how to act when we're at church. We've got enough of that going on in the church, acting one way when you're in the building and another way out there. That's not what he's calling us to. He's talking about how we would conduct ourselves as we interact with one another in here and out there as the household of God's people. So he's, he's writing him to instruct how one ought to behave you could just translate it this way, among the people of God, in the household of God. Now, um, we, what, what's going to happen now in verse 15 is he's going to say, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So the church itself then should be a pillar. Again, not just a piece of stone carved into a pillar, right? Not just a building with a steeple that people see and are reminded, oh, that's a church, but to be a pillar of what is true. That every time people gather as the people of God, what is true is being held up. Even when we gather over coffee at Starbucks to check in on one another, and right, when the people of God come together, 
what is true is being held up, and we're constantly reminding each other of what is true. This is what is true. The gospel is true. Now, I love this wording. Um, The ESV translated buttress, and other than this occurrence, I've never even heard of that word. Um, the, uh, the NASB uh, and the NIV um, will, will, I think, both of those refer to it as the foundation. The King James or the New King James uh, will refer to it as the ground of what is true. So you get this imagery that the church is the pillar holding up what is true, but also the foundation, standing up for what is firm and solid, the very ground we walk on of what is true. And that's the responsibility of the church Understanding the church is not a building, it's who? The people of God. So you, Christians, have been commissioned to live in the community you live in, the culture you live in, to be a representative of the church, to be a pillar holding up what is true, and to you yourself stand on what is true and firm. Okay? Now, moving forward is really we're going to land today in verse 16. So... So in the first part of chapter 3, he's walked through the character of an elder. He rolls into verse 8 to the character of the deacon and their wives. And so we, we know that this idea of, of morality and character on the outside are really the topic of where he's at right now in his thought process. Okay, And, and the word gets translated godliness. And we've probably heard that, that word used in different terms. Maybe your parents or your grandparents called you to godliness. It's important for us to remember what he also wrote in Ephesians, godliness is God-likeness, okay? Not just moral behavior, but reflecting the character of God in the world. There's a difference. As Christians, we're not just called to behave properly because it makes God happy, but we're to go out and be God-like to reflect the character of who he is in the world around us. That can happen both when we get it right and when we fail, by the way. So when you, when you do get it right, when you engage in something that's God-like, you're caring for the, the, the helpless, you're, uh, you're extending grace to somebody, or forgiveness, and you're reflecting the character of God, and you get it right, and there's a sense of, wow, I, I admire that in you. What do you do? You want to reflect. That's God in me. It's not me. That's who Christ is. That's what he's doing in me. It's, right? What about when we fail and get it wrong, parents? How do we reflect God-likeness in that moment? Repentance. It's, it's good to go to your children and ask for forgiveness when you mess up. Because in doing so, you're reflecting what? A sense of humility and saying, listen, I need God's grace. And though you didn't see God-likeness in me in that moment, in what I said or how I said it or how I acted, now I want you to understand God is a God of grace. And when we confess and ask for forgiveness, he is faithful and just to forgive. And so I'm asking you to forgive me. And so you can reflect God-likeness both when you get it right and when you get it wrong. And so that's the idea of godliness that, uh, that, that Paul is calling us to here. And this is a really important part of what I want us to see. So great indeed we confess, this is verse 16, is the mystery of godliness. So the word mystery implies that godliness is something to be thought about. It's not just, right, you don't just get it the first time through. It's not obvious on the surface what is meant by godliness. It has depths and layers. It's the same thing he wrote to the Ephesian church when he said the mystery of the gospel. You need to think about it. You need to grow in your knowledge of it. And you need to be deepened in your understanding of what the gospel is. So now he's using the word mystery to reply to godliness, that we might stop and think about it. It's more than just surface-level moral behavior. 
So we talked about this last week, the difference between being anti-law, because of God's grace, there's no call to godliness or holiness in my life. On one side of a spectrum, the other side was, um, was religious uh, self-righteousness, um, a sense of, 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 of being um, highly moral and putting on the facade, faking it, pretending to be better than you actually are while on the inside, there's, right, there's, there's nothing going on or there's hidden sin. Okay, we're not calling the church to that. To walk into the building with your church clothes on and your church smile on and your church lingo ready to go. And I want you, husband and wives, pretend like you're getting along. Kids, pretend like you're obedient. That's not, that's not the godliness that we're being called to. It's a mysterious godliness. So he takes us right to the mystery. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then what does he do? Without, a, without missing a beat, he goes right to the gospel. What it, the mystery of godliness. He, being Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. God's son came and dwelt among us. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. Now what in the world does the gospel have to do with godliness, godlikeness, character, morality? Has everything to do with it, by the way. Everything. So there's this, this beautiful metaphor that Jesus will use when he, in Matthew 13, talks about how we receive the gospel. And he uses um, farming illustrations, which works for me. I come from an agricultural background, and so I understand. So he talks about how the gospel is a seed that's planted in our hearts. Again, consistent. It's a deposit that's been made. And so how you know if a person has responded to the, the gospel correctly, you can tell in the end because fruit will be produced. He gives three examples of how, um, how the seed doesn't take root in a person's heart. Springs up quickly. There's no root. Um, birds come and snatch it away. Um, the sun scorches it. And one of the, the uh, illustrations, the thorns come and choke it out, the worries of life. But there's a fourth one where the, the seed, the gospel, is deposited in good soil. And the way you know it is because it produces fruit. And so in Jesus' teaching... There's a close connection between the gospel in our hearts and then what comes out of our lives. There's a connection between the roots and the fruit. Matter of fact, in Matthew 7, um, there's an illustration where, um, actually, uh, Matthew 7, Matthew 12, and Luke 6. I'll, I'll refer to Luke's account. Luke 6, Jesus says this, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Right? It's not possible. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush, from a bramble bush. The good person out of, a, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth what? Speaks. So what comes out of our life is a reflection of what's going on on the inside. Right? Truly. Now, there is the possibility of the facade, faking and acting, right? In the end, you can see through that, right? At least your, your spouse can and your children. You may have the rest of us fooled, but the people closest to you can see through the facade. They know how you are on Monday morning in comparison to how you are on Sunday morning. They know how you were two hours ago as opposed to how you are right now sitting in the church building, right? So, 
So what Jesus is saying, and I believe Paul is going to commission to Timothy, is reminding him that the godliness we're calling to you has to come out of a heart that's rooted in the gospel. For whatever the root attaches itself to is going to be reflected in the fruit. If the roots are in bad soil or connected to something that's not, not good, not alive, right, what's going to come out? Bad fruit. Now, for most of us in Christ, um, hopefully there are examples in your life of branches that are bearing good fruit. And the challenge is we still have places in our life, right, where, where bad fruit is still trying to come out, which means what? We're not fully rooted in the gospel, maybe mostly, and, right, and we've given our life, we've been saved, but there's still this, I need to pull this root, it's still attached to something. Maybe it's a, a career or a possession or a heart attitude, and so your roots are still trying to grab onto things that produce bad fruit. So as we grow in Christ and we become more and more rooted in the gospel, Right, our, our, our roots and our, everything that we understand to be true is built on the foundation, the, the buttress, the pillar of what is true. All right. I love the way that the, the Psalms begin, Psalm 1, um, 1 through 3. I was meeting with Cam, our life group's uh, minister and director this week, and we were talking about the material that's coming up for this month. Our life groups are going to be talking about this very relationship between the gospel being the root and the fruit of godliness that comes out of our lives and, uh, and Cam actually pointed me to Psalm 1. Uh, the first three verses of the Psalms talk about this, this beautiful um, illustration and metaphor. Uh, verse 1 of Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is Old Testament principle, that when we're rooted in what is true, we're like a tree that flourishes, that's planted next to water, right? Always growing, always alive, and producing fruit. What happens, though, when we, when we quit drawing from the source, the well, of what is true. We, we quit growing, and if we do that long enough, we'll begin to wither, right? May, may be able to fake it for a while, but eventually what we're drawing from is gonna come out. And some of you know this, even your own struggle with sin, like maybe you pretend that you weren't struggling with something for a period of time, and then all of a sudden it came out, boom. That's what was happening, okay? Now, in verse, uh, again in verse 16, he says this, the mystery of the gospel, great indeed we confess is the mystery of the gospel, or of godliness, excuse me. Then he goes to the gospel, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. Now this, you'll find this continual theme all throughout First, Second Timothy and Titus. Um, an example from Titus would be from Titus 2. If you're familiar with, with Titus, chapter 2 moves from elders to discipleship. Men, you disciple the younger men. Older women in the faith, you disciple the younger women in the faith. And there's this call to godliness in verse 11 of chapter 2 in Titus. Uh, this is what Paul writes to Titus, young pastor. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He starts with the gospel. Then look at what he says in verse 12. Training us to... Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present 
age. So stop right there. What trains us to, to renounce ungodliness and to live towards godliness? What is it? The gospel, right? The grace has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, and it trains us to let go of, to pull roots out of things of the world and to begin to root ourselves in what is true. Then he goes on to say in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see where the both of those are in there? Because of the gospel, because of the cross, Jesus has rescued you. And he didn't just rescue you and send you on your way. He rescued you into his own family, that you were now part of the redeemed, the family of God. But one of the characteristics of those who have been rescued and saved is that now they're now zealous for good works. There's now this desire to do good. This can be a real discouraging or challenging thing for a, for a new Christian to hear who is excited about grace but still struggling big time in good works and being generous and being graceful towards people. And, and so here's the thing that I would say changes immediately when you're saved. The Holy Spirit comes in. Now your wanter changes. There's now, like we read in Psalm, there's now a desire for the law, a desire to do good. Paul shares his own wrestling. He said, at times I, I don't do what I want to do. Other times I don't do what I want to do. Like sometimes I, I know what I shouldn't do and that's what I actually do. But other times I know what I should do and I don't do it. But then he ends that whole section in Romans 7 by talking about, but there's a new desire for the law. I desire to do good. Okay, so struggling Christians, like we need to hear that. Like your desire to do good is, is God calling you, compelling you towards godliness. What do you do when you get it right? You say, that's God in me. If you don't like me, you like God in me. And what do you do when you get it wrong? We, we fall back to our knees in humility, right, and repentance. And what does Jesus do in that moment? Beat us down? No, he says, here, let me pick you up one more time. And again, and again. And he, as he picks us up like the woman caught in adultery, he sets our feet back down. What does he say? Okay, go and sin no more. Oh, you've messed up again? And he keeps calling us towards godliness. Now, In First uh, Timothy, we, we were in three. If you move to the next chapter four, chapter four, um, starting in verse six, um, Paul commissions Timothy to make this the main thing that he teaches the church, to keep putting it in front of the church. Matter of fact, he says it in several places. I just picked one. In First Timothy four, starting in verse six, he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And then look at what he says. Being trained, there's that word trained again. Remember what he told Titus? You'll be trained by the gospel. It will train you towards godliness. Here he's saying it to Timothy. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed. So something to do with guarding the deposit of the gospel, this good doctrine that's been entrusted to us, will produce in us godliness. Look at what he goes to in this very same context, verse 7 have nothing to do with irrelevant or irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godlikeness. So away from false teachings, away from myths and, and silly things, 
right, away from what's not founded and grounded and true to stand on what is true because in standing on what is true, it will produce godliness. Rather, train yourselves for godliness Then he uses physical training for a while. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This this theme running all throughout 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus is the reason why at this little point in the series we've we've called it the word that leads to life. That this is not simply something that we interact with externally, that we use as just an instruction manual that we consult, that we decide, well, do I like what it has to say on this topic or not? Do I like what it has to say today or not? This is something that if all you do is read, it will have no value for you. But if you allow it to read you, to soak into, to be planted and deposited into who you are, it produces life. These are the words that lead to life. We're in a a cultural mindset shift right now between pragmatism and a sense of, of, um, I don't really even know what the right label is gonna be. Check back with me in about 20 years and we'll figure out what label to put on this new mindset. Um, But it's a customization of sorts. It's a picking and choosing of what we want to believe, a picking and choosing from science, a picking and choosing from history, a picking and choosing from religion. And so we we as a culture are, we're standing on individually what, what makes sense to us individually. And that's, that's just a description of what the culture is doing out there. It's why it's so confusing. Is this person a Christian or not? On one hand, they profess to be a Christian, but then I heard them in an interview the other day, and they were talking about something that is not the doctrine of Christ. What's happening there? Well, religion has become like a buffet line, if you will. It's a picking and choosing. What am I in the mood for today? And so you kind of get this customized worldview Right? Instead of standing on what is true, you pick and choose what you want to be in your true basket for the day. And you say, today, I believe this is true. Whether it be a historical event, like the Holocaust, or it be a true sound teaching from scriptures. And so the gospel then is not something to decide if you like it or not. It's an invitation of Jesus to be received as it is. As soon as you begin to change it and modify the parts of it you don't like, you're, you're not believing in the gospel that saves and leads to life anymore. Now, you might be grabbing a hold of something that feels comfortable to you at the moment. So, for example, the idea that, um, that, that, that all men have fallen short of the glory of God, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that without a rescue, without a rescue, we're hopeless. We have no hope beyond this Life, or even in this life, especially beyond this life, apart from the salvation Jesus offers. If you're a person who doesn't believe that and you believe people are inherently good and that what Jesus did on the cross is really just inspiration to kind of help keep you moving along, right? You've modified the gospel and it's not in fact the gospel anymore. And that's why Paul, I believe God through Paul is commissioning these pastors, you must guard that deposit, protect it. Be dogmatic about the doctrine of the gospel. It's the ground that you stand on. And think about what Jesus said about ground, Matthew 7. He says, any man who hears these words of mine and does them 
right? Puts them into practice, believes them, and does them will be like the wise man who builds his house on solid ground. When the storm comes, rest assured it's coming. Several storms are coming. And when the storm comes, the house withstands. But any man who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on shifting sand. You see, you can be comfortable in a moment customizing the gospel or your worldview to fit you for what you want for the moment. But the problem is when the storm comes, the thing's going to rattle apart. And so we're at a place where we, our culture is saying, man, the Bible is just so old. It can't be relevant for today. Like it's so old. It hasn't been updated. Like really? I mean, does this really apply to today? And what the word itself says is this applies. You better believe it. Regardless of the culture, whether you're a, a rich American or a poor third world person, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Chinese, German, what this says to you, it doesn't matter what culture, whether you grew up in a, in a perfect family where mom and dad were awesome and loved you well, or you were an orphan, or you were abused, you were neglected, no matter who you are on the face of the earth, this is the foundation that will lead to real life. I would say this, you don't even have to like everything it has to say as much as you need to believe it, and in believing it, guess what will happen? Your heart's affection for it will be stirred like the psalmist says in Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, and you will begin to see this as treasure, like Jesus says in Luke 6. Out of the treasure of your heart, what matters to you will come the fruit. You can't just read a proverb every day and get some instruction. Now, read a proverb, it's good, but don't just read it and go, I'm just going to obey the instruction and then I'll be godly. It won't work. You need to allow what's written in the Proverbs to soak in. Psalm 1 says, meditate on it day and night. Let it saturate into who you are. Let it be deposited into your very soul. Um, The way I think about this is, is like the way genetics work. So before I became a Christian, my DNA was inherently bent towards selfishness 100% of the time. Even when I did something nice for my neighbor, it was in exchange for her buttermilk pies that were awesome, right? Or it was for the applause that I would get from her and from all the neighbors and say, oh, look at Jason raking her leaves. He's such a good boy. I'm just being honest. My motives were skewed. It was about the way it made me feel. But what happened after I trusted the gospel and believed it is on the inside, the DNA of my will began to shift and change. And I began slowly to want to do things for people that nobody knew. That was Christ in me. Still struggle today with the applause. That's not Christ in me. That's me, right? But whenever, whenever I'm able to participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing and do something for someone or share the gospel in a way that it's not about me, it's about God and, and them, in that moment, Christ is working in me. And that's the DNA of the gospel changing me from the inside out. If you are in Christ, his spirit is alive in you. Not coming and going, alive in you. In every decision, his spirit is there to inform you. As you open the word, his spirit is there with a flashlight, helping you see it, helping you understand it, helping you fall more in love with it. Not just it, but the God that it talks about. And there's a process 
called sanctification. So we don't go from unsaved, saved, perfectly godly. If you see that, be leery, okay? Even Paul, with his dramatic transformation, okay, so he goes from what? Christian killer. I'm not just saying he got in a, in a, in a, in a scuff, in an argument, and he killed a Christian. He actually went to the authorities and asked for written permission to go kill Christians, okay? Has this road to, to Damascus transformation, blindness, now he's, his, his eyes are open to the gospel to see the law the way it's supposed to be. Does he, is he, does he have it all down immediately? No. He still struggles. That's why he writes in Romans 7, I'm still struggling to do what is right and to not do what is wrong. I'm still struggling. But I'm struggling as one who loves the law. I'm struggling as one striving towards the goal. This process is called sanctification. I think this tree illustration is helpful, right? Because... Weeds can grow up fast. You can get plants to grow up fast, but go try to plant a tree. I'm doing some, some, some work out in our front yard, and, and where I have to, some trees are coming down. Every time I think about it, a tree comes down, I'm like, oh, it took 15, 20 years for that thing to get to this point. I don't want to tear trees down if I don't have to. Grass, I'll mess the grass up. Why? Because it'll be back next month. But what we're talking about here are trees. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He's talking about the same thing. The life that you have will be, a, it will be coming out of you being grafted into me, abiding in me, abiding in what is true. That will give you life and produce fruit. Does that mean life free from hard times? No, because the storm's still coming, Right? And we also know that right after he says that, I'm the vine, you're the branches, my father's the vine dresser. He prunes the, the branches that are bearing fruit, right? But then he cuts off the ones that aren't. What does it mean to be pruned? He's talking about discipline, right? He's talking about discipline. Just to help us understand the difference between discipline and punishment. Punishment is looking backward. Discipline's looking forward. God disciplines those he loves. He helps shape our character as we grow forward. Punishment is what we do when we look back and we just punish somebody for what they've done. Your punishment is done. That's what that is. That's what the cross is. That's your punishment for sin. God working in your life, wrestling with you, shaping you is discipline. It's God pruning you, right, so that you can bear better fruit. Um, when I was, one of my first jobs uh, as, a, as a young guy, I'm saying it was about probably 12 or 13, was um, uh, peach trees. I come from Parker County, and peach trees are still a thing, but even back then, you know, when I was 13, five years ago, it was, it was a really big deal. And, um, and so um, when I signed on to, uh, to, to be a peach tree farmer with my grandfather and his good friend, um, all I had in my mind was going down to First Monday Grounds, which is like the flea market. And all I pictured was handing people peaches and taking money. And I said, yeah, I'm in. I'll do that. Can I eat some too? Like the ones I get brewed? Yeah, I can do that. So yeah, what a job. Sit on the back of the truck in the shade, eat peaches, and take people's money. I mean, I, I had to learn what a bushel and a peck was. That was about the extent of it. And then I remember like in late January, my grandfather said, okay, we're going to do peaches this summer, right? Yeah, let's get started. And I'm thinking... It's still like 40 degrees outside. What do you mean we're going to get started? Well, we have to go prune the trees. If you want a harvest this summer, we have to go prune. What do you mean? 
Like, what do you mean prune? So we get out there and he's teaching me and my friend how to prune a tree. And I'm thinking, we have to do this to all of them? Like just this one? No, we have to do this to all of them all day long. It was like four Saturdays in a row out there pruning trees in one little patch. And, and I didn't get it. I was really frustrated, okay? But when it came time to harvest, I got it. Because I remember being sloppy in the pruning. And, and I was able to see that sloppiness when it came to the harvest. We drive out into the orchard and there's a, there's a peach tree branch laying on the ground, just broken off from the trunk. Well, Grandpa, what happened there? You see all that fruit? That branch didn't get pruned. Whose job was it to protect that branch? Mine. Is pruning fun? No. Does it feel good? No. But it's always for your good and his glory. See, pruning, like the fruit tree, two things happen when you prune well. You produce a better fruit and you protect the life of the tree. And so this is what God is calling us to as Christians in godly living, that we would every year, that's the thing, the next year, guess what happens in late January? I'm like, I thought we did this last year, right? Why do trees need haircuts? Like, we pruned them. No, we have to go prune them again and again and again. And if you prune a tree well, guess what happens over time? They get, they get easier to prune and they begin to take shape. That's godliness in us, godlikeness. Roots in the gospel, standing on what is sound and what is true, regardless of what the world is telling you or inviting you to believe. You make a decision. I'm going to believe the gospel. I'm not going to change it. I'm going to believe it as it is. I'm going to set my roots in that. I'm going to pursue godliness, which means when I get it wrong, I'm going to repent. I'm going to seek once again the grace of God, and he's going to prune me and shape me. And over time, guess what? Good fruit's going to come out. Any, I don't know if you've ever planted a pecan tree. Pecan trees are unpredictable. You never know how many years it's going to be before they produce fruit. And they just all of a sudden decide, I'm going to produce fruit. Some of them, it's early on, four or five years in. Some of them, it's like 12 years in. All of a sudden, one year, there's a, there's a, there's a harvest. I know a lot of us feel like that, Christians. Like, like, I don't see any fruit coming out of my life. This just, just really feels like I'm wasting my time. I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and just falling right back on me. What do you do in those moments? Stand firm in what you believe is true. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that God is working inside you even when you can't feel it? The gospel says that he hears our prayers when we cry out to him as, our, as, our, as, as his children. So whether we believe it's getting to him or not, is it? You better believe it. And guess what? When we fumble and we don't even know what to say, you know what the gospel says to us in Romans 8? The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf and helps translate our mumbling and jumbling to the heart of God. That's what is true, whether I feel like it's true or not. This is where I'd like to end today, um, just with a clear understanding of what Paul is calling these young pastors to put before the church, that this is the word that will lead to life. This is the word that is the well of life from which we draw for all of life's circumstances. Matthew 7, it's the foundation for which we, on which we build our house. That means everything. 
what we believe, how we see the world, how we interact with our spouse, how we treat our children. Everything is built on this. It is the word. It is the well of life for all of life. It gives us the humility to gracefully walk through victories. The gospel does that. It reminds you, hey, quit taking credit for this. Remember who you used to be? Quit taking credit for this. That's the gospel. It humbly allows us to celebrate victories and growth and fruit and people coming to Christ. And we can get excited in here, right? As long as the glory is going where? To him. And not to us or this building or even this church name. The word gives us the strength to face adversity and even suffering. We say this in here often, right? Suffering for for some of you is just one phone call away. Like it's right around the corner and and many of us don't even know it. Suffering is really good at sneaking up on us. What do you do? Well, if you're rooted in the gospel, right, you feel it, but you don't move. It's the tree that's planted well. It gives us the strength to face adversity and suffering, the knowledge to evaluate the voice of the world. Uh, uh, Try to encourage parents, um, the conversations you're having with your kiddos. Don't wait for the world to bring up the hard topics with your kids. That's my encouragement to you. Okay? Birds and the bees, yeah. Don't use the birds and the bees because it's goofy and doesn't make sense to a young kid. Um, But your version of it, figure it out. You be the first person, the first voice your kids hear on that topic and others like it. The the world we live in has a loud voice. How do we evaluate what is true and what is not? We have to have a filter, right? We have to be able to to go back and say, well, I mean, right? That movie professed to be a Christian movie. Is it? How do we know? We go to the word, right? The wisdom to sort through life's difficult scenarios. And this is where we find our training for God-likeness. Right here. In those moments where we feel like, I don't look like God. I don't even feel like I'm part of his family. The gospel says, what are you talking about? You've been adopted in. Well, how do we know that? We go to the word. I want to leave you with some questions to consider as our worship team gets ready to come back up. And these are just questions for you. Um, To begin with, has the grace of God been planted in your heart at all? Or is that still a foreign concept? Do you believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross? Do you really believe that? That's grace. It's a picture of what grace looks like. Him taking your place there. Do you believe that? And then probably a follow-up question would be, do you know him personally? You have to start with, do you believe that that's true? And if so, he's inviting you into a relationship. He's saying, I did that so you can know me, so you can be with me, so you can walk with me, and I with you and in you. We gotta start here, because we don't go here, right? We have no avenue to him. If you believe this, come to me, is what Jesus says. And I would encourage you to stop right there and just evaluate, have you truly trusted in the grace of Jesus and Jesus alone for your forgiveness of sins and your salvation. I mean, some of us, I think, are still riding on the coattails of what our parents believe or what our grandparents believe, and we for ourselves haven't stopped to evaluate the cross and to make our own declaration, I believe it for me. I need that. 
for those who are Christians, I would ask this, has the gospel become a well of life that feeds your soul? Or was the gospel just JV Christianity and now you've graduated on to bigger theological topics and more interesting things like end times? Have, we, have you walked away from deserted to been diverted from this gospel? Is it the well that you draw from in life situations like when you're angry? What do you do when you get angry? God's word tells me not to be angry. I'm just not gonna be angry anymore. Good luck. You know what works? To take a moment and reflect on what righteous anger looks like. We just sang it. God's righteous anger was poured out on his son at the cross. And I look at my own anger and go, my anger's not righteous. I am more better positioned to be a recipient of anger than to be delving it out on my kids right now. See how the gospel transforms that? What do you do when you're hurt? You feel lonely, you feel betrayed, you feel abandoned. What informs you that God hasn't left you? The gospel. I will never leave you or forsake you. You're my son and my daughter. I've adopted you into the household. You're in. This is long term. How about when you're struggling with pride? We talked about that already, right? Um, we're horrible evaluators of our own pride. If you're married, though, God's given you a really good evaluation tool for pride. The challenge is to hear it, right? But nobody is better positioned to let you know you're being a little prideful right now, and that hurts but it causes me to look back to the cross and go, you know what, I am. I need to be standing on the ground of what is true in the gospel, not this false sense of I'm a know-it-all and I know it's best for our family, and, right? So what do we do in pride? We go back to the cross. This is a few more examples. Um, we talked about this in when you fail as a parent. Two options. One, pretend like you didn't fail and just go on, but your kids know it. <laughs> or go back to the cross in humility, seek forgiveness, and allow God to shape and prune that part of your life a little bit more. When your marriage becomes rocky, marriage counseling, absolutely. Marriage counseling rooted in the gospel. Otherwise, you won't have the grace to make it to step number two in marriage counseling if the gospel's not the, the source that you're drawing from as you work through hard things and share hard things and strive towards treating one another better. So there's some, there's some examples there for you to evaluate. Am I drawing from that well? And I wanna leave you with this. If you've been challenged at all today, I wanna encourage you to consider um, just taking one action step today or this week at least. Like before you leave here and in whatever way God has challenged you, and so I'll give you some examples of what could be, but I'll let you work that out between you and the Lord. Um, maybe you just wanna make a commitment to open your Bible this week, but you don't know where to start, okay? Um, one of the reasons why we teach in series is so you know where we're going and you can read with us and read ahead. It gives you a place to go read. I invite you to do that, to read with us Timothy, First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. Then after that, we'll move on to First and Second Corinthians. Read it at your pace and let God speak to you. If that's not the place for you to start right now, um, I encourage you to go to the Psalms. Just did it, right? Chapter one and maybe the Gospel of John and just read a chapter of each one for a few days. Try to read through the whole Gospel of John that way. Maybe today would be a day you see, I need to make a commitment to open the Bible this week. Um, I would say this, though, if this is your commitment, 
um, that you don't just make time to read it, but you, you, you make time also to meditate on it, well, even if it's only 15 minutes. Just reading the words and going on, I don't think it's going to help you a whole lot. You've got to read it and then soak into it and let it soak into you. So I would leave you with this. Um, hopefully you're challenged this week to let the words soak into you, to let the words begin to read you back to yourself, like to be a mirror. Right? We don't just read it, we let it read us. And then there's another resource that, um, that we've put together. It's actually at the kiosk on your way at how to read the Bible, just some more tools to help you read the Bible devotionally and grow in what, in what we're calling this well of life. Um, so I'm gonna leave you with those questions and possibilities of commitments. It's all up to you. But I would say this, um, we're gonna have our prayer partners down front. Matter of fact, worship team, if you guys will come down and, uh, and prayer partners will come down as well. We're here now to pray with you and talk with you and lead you and help you uh, to follow through with whatever God's challenged you on this morning. And, uh, and so our prayer partners will have a lanyard on. We'll have some down here at the front, some at the back. And I just wanna encourage you that if, if God is prompting you or challenging you to approach one of them today, uh, look, they're so sweet. Look at these prayer partners. Don't they just, they're just like, I just wanna go talk and pray with one of these people. Um, they really, they're here to pray with you. And no situation is too small, okay? No conversation is, is, is gonna be boring or off topic. Like they're here to talk with you and pray with you. Let me pray for us, and um, our worship team will lead us in singing.